0: Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And uh, children, you could be dismissed for junior church. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. You know, it was back in college. I went to a Bible college. And for those of you that are familiar with Bible colleges, the Not a whole lot of them around still. Um, Bible colleges, you would actually double major. You would major in Bible, and then you would major in your major. So, um, everybody would walk out with at least a double major, some with triple majors. One of the classes I had to take in Bible college was this course on cults and world religions. And so we, we had a textbook that we needed to read. And we needed to be prepared to deal with cults and different people from different religions to understand their beliefs and their structures and to understand ours as well to know what we believe and why we believe it. So in this class, I took the class and as I was wont in college, I didn't tend to read a whole lot of the textbook. I skimmed. Don't do that if you're a student. I skimmed my textbook and one of the assignments at the end of the course was that we needed to interview somebody from a cult or a world religion, uh, a leader from that group. And so I figured out who I was going to interview, the cult that I was going to interview, and I found a leader of that cult in my um, area. And I can remember it, it's three decades or more ago, That's how old are we, man? Um, three decades ago, amazingly enough, but I can remember it like it was just today. I, I drove in my car. I know where I parked. I can even see the man's office. I walked across the street, sat down with this guy, and I figured I've got my verses down. I know what they believe. This is going to be easy. It wasn't. Now we may have had a different God. We clearly did. We had a different viewpoint on the Lord Jesus Christ. We had a different viewpoint on the Holy Spirit. We had a different viewpoint of what the Holy Scriptures were. We had a different point of what salvation was. We had a different point on beliefs, but I struggled to handle it. I'll be honest. I went in with presumption and pride. I was not prepared. I didn't spend time in prayer before that occasion and I got whipped mercilessly. And I walked out of there self-conscious. I walked out of there uncomfortable. I walked out of there unsettled. I will tell you that I even was questioning my faith as I walked out of there. Not really. I knew the gospel. I had been a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ since I was 13 years old. But here's the problem. Before I was 13, God gave me the opportunity to lead people to faith, and I wasn't even a believer. I knew the content of the gospel. I could speak the content of the gospel. I could disciple, I could counsel people, I could tell people the truths, but it was on a youth winter retreat at 13 years old that God rescued me and drew me to faith amazingly at Pinebrook Bible Conference just down the road. So I had known the gospel for many years by the time I had this encounter with this person but I went in with pride I went in with presumption and I got punched I want you to think about that this morning as we look at this passage because this passage is about a young boy who is possessed by a demon and the disciples who had previously been given power by God to remove demons thought they could go into this presumptuously, pridefully, without prayer, and they failed. See, my failure was just one-on-one with an individual in an office. Their failure was before the crowds, before the scribes, and before this father. Such embarrassment. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to use this failure as an opportunity to teach them some significant things. And I want you to hear these three things that we're going to be trying to challenge this morning. The ruthlessness of evil. The ruthlessness of evil. We're going to see that evil is present in here, and it is going to be ruthless and demeaning and destructive. I want you to see, second, that there's a reality to faith. That faith needs to be placed in the person and work of Christ. You can't. He can. The ruthlessness of evil, the reality of faith, and then reliance on prayer is so essential for the disciples at that time, but it's so essential for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So would you pray with me as we begin and look at this text? Lord, today, I pray that you would remind us of our great danger of self-reliance, the great danger of presumption the great danger of pride and the great danger of prayerlessness in our lives. Father, there's so many of us that know the truths of your word. We know your gospel, but sometimes, Father, we just forget that we are dependent upon you. So, Lord, I pray that you would fill us by your spirit. I pray that you would show us your son. I pray that you would magnify your grace and glory in our lives and through our lives and help us to reflect you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so the way I'm going to do it is this. I'm going to walk you through the text and give you an overview of the passage, just step by step through the passage, and then I'm going to pull out those three points that we talked about. So let's look at the passage first. First, I want you to see a dazzled crowd. There's a dazzled crowd here. It says here in verses 14 and 15, and when they came, who's they? they? The they is Jesus Christ and then the three disciples, Peter, James, and John. As we heard last week, they were on the Mount of Transfiguration and now they're coming down the mountain. It's almost symbolic of what happened with Moses. If you remember Moses at Sinai, he is on the mountain, he's receiving the Ten Commandments, and he comes down to the valley, and he sees all the discord that is happening that is symbolic of what's happening here. Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and he comes to the valley, and he sees the discord. So when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd among around them. And the scribes, the scribes are the experts of the law of Moses, they were disputing and debating the disciples. It says they were arguing with them. So the scribes were the initiators here. They are arguing with the disciples in some way or another. We'll find out why in a moment. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, the crowd sees Jesus now. What they do, they were greatly amazed, and they ran to him and greeted him. Now, some hypothesize, I don't believe this is true, some hypothesize, like Moses came down from the mountain with this glow on his face, that Jesus came down with this glow on his face. I don't believe that, um, because Jesus had told the disciples, don't tell anybody, so if he has this glow, it's, everybody would have known something was different. I just think it was Jesus' fame and popularity, and that they had been waiting there for Jesus, and now they're running to Jesus. They, they're they amazed by him, It says. Greatly amazed, overwhelmed with wonder, excited. He had like a celebrity status at this time. This is the place of popularity. It's going to descend as his message is going to get harder to these people. Okay, now, so we have this dazzled crowd and they ran up to Jesus. Now we go to the disputing scribes, verse 16. And then he, Jesus, asked them, who are you arguing with or what are you arguing about with them? Now, there's some question about who's the them and you, and I'm not completely sure. He could be saying here, what are you, scribes, arguing with them, my disciples, about? That's possible. It could be, what are you, disciples, arguing with them, the, um, the um, scribes, could be. And it could be the crowd. I'm not completely sure. I tend to believe is, what are you, scribes, arguing with my disciples about? Now, the... Scribes are just ultimately skeptical. They're skeptical of Jesus' messiahship. They're skeptical of his message. They just do not believe him. And in fact, we've been seeing that they actually believe that the things he's been doing have been driven by Satan. They do not trust what they're seeing with Jesus. The disputing scribes. Next, I want you to see the disciples' failure. Verse sixteen and 17 and 18. And someone from the crowd answered him. So now Jesus had asked a question nobody had answered. And I, I could almost understand the disciples didn't answer because they're probably embarrassed. We failed, Jesus. And we want to tell everybody I failed. They didn't want to do that. And the scribes didn't say anything. But this man rushes out of the crowd. And someone answered him from the crowd and said, Teacher, I brought my son to you. I was bringing him to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. Okay, so now what we see is this, this young boy and he is showing signs, people believe, of epilepsy, which is possible. It's possible that he had a physical issue here that was being shown, but it's much greater. Jesus Christ is going to say that this is not just simply physical, that there's a spiritual component because Jesus is going to connect it to a demon and he's going to drive out this demon. But we will see the foaming and the grinding of his teeth, the rigid, and I don't know if you've ever seen anybody, I don't know if you've ever seen anybody go through a seizure. I have. And it is scary. And you're seeing this, this person writhing and flailing all over the place. And there is a fear that is within you. And there's certain ways that you're supposed to help them to try to protect them. And then you're supposed to get away. But this is even worse. This is not just a physical issue. This is a spiritual thing that is happening. This demon is driving this guy around. Now, it's clear that the father brought this young boy to Jesus so that Jesus could help him. And Jesus wasn't there because he was on the mountain of transfiguration. And so now, what do I got? I, I got the nine disciples. I guess you guys follow him. Maybe you can help me. But they couldn't. You know, in fact, if there is a single phrase in this whole section that jumps out at me is, they were not able if you're not opposed to writing and underlining, that would be the line that would, I would ask you to consider. They were not able. They couldn't do it. So the disciples' failure is pretty clear. They were not strong enough. They were not able. Jesus had given them authority previously, though. If you go back to chapter 3 in verse 15, and you go back to chapter 6 in verse 7, you will see that Jesus gave them authority over the demons, and we will see that they were actually successful. If you go back to uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 13, they were successful. So what is different now? We'll find out in a moment. So we see the disciples' failure now leads to a divine rebuke, verse 19. And he answered them, O faithless generation, faithless. You 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 lack faith. You're unbelieving. You do not trust me. You do not listen to me. You do not yield to me. You are faithless. Now, who is he talking to? Now, once again, it could be the whole crowd. It could be the scribes or it could be his disciples. It could even be the father. I think it's everybody that he's talking to. But the message clearly is going to be to train and teach the disciples. So we're going to see that throughout. Oh, faithless generation. And then and then Jesus says this, rhetorical questions. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Can you hear the divine frustration that is there? That That Jesus is so frustrated with the stubbornness and the persistent unbelief that is here with these people. I have been with you. I have displayed myself to you. And you still do not believe. You still do not trust. Now, now, for some of us, when we find ourselves frustrated, we rebuke people and we leave them. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus did not rebuke them and leave them. He rebuked and he said this, bring him to me. That even in the divine rebuke, Jesus shows his compassion and his care for people. He, he loves people and he sees the misery that they're going through and he knows he's the answer to that misery. And he offers for that boy to come to him. That leads us to the destructive demon. It says in verse 22, and they brought the boy to him. And when the, the spirit saw him, now the spirit with inside the boy sees Jesus and immediately, another one of Mark's favorite words used multiple times in this text, mo- immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and he rolled about foaming at the mouth. I want you to see the destructive demon. This demon inside of this young boy is trying to attack him. And it's been attacking him, and we will find out from even childhood. It's been doing this to him over and over and over again. This destructive demon leads to a desperate father. I, I've had children that have gone through a lot of medical issues, a lot. I have had a wife that's gone through medical issues as well. I will tell you that there is um, nothing like a father or a mother watching their child going through pain. I I would take that pain in two seconds if you gave it to me and to see the pain that his son is going through and he can't do anything about it. And this desperate father is is, is saying, "I, I just, I can't handle this. Jesus, in his compassion, asked the father, how long has this been happening? And he said, from childhood. And then he gives more information about this demon. It cast him into the fire and often into the water with the goal of destroying him. That's the motive of all unclean spirits, destruction. And then the father makes this line. I want you to see this doubting face. He says, But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help him. Help us, actually. It's interesting that he had enough faith to bring bring his boy to Jesus, but now his faith is wavering. You know, we have, as with my family... We have gone from doctor to doctor, medication to medication, treatment to treatment, all of them promising freedom and oftentimes not getting it. I almost think that that's what this father is going through, that he's probably taken him to physician after physician to try to help his boy. He's probably taken him to the same religious leaders and they failed. I brought them to your disciples and they failed. I'm losing hope that anybody could conquer this. Have you ever gotten to a place like that in your life? Where the problem seems so big and so overwhelming, and the circumstance seems so strong, and that the God with you seems so small? Well, that's exactly what he's saying here. It's this doubting faith. But watch Jesus here. Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible. For those who believe. Now some would say, if you can. He's got his finger pointed out at the father. I don't believe that. I think what he's saying is that Jesus, he was asked. Jesus was asked, if you can, Jesus, can you do this? And it's like, if I can. See, if you do not understand a God who is able, you do not have a God. This God is not only able, but he has shown that he is willing If I can, I can do all things. I spoke this world into existence. I've raised dead people. I've removed demons. I've created food out of my hands. I hold this world together. I hold the stars in the sky. That is who I am, Jesus is saying. All things are possible for those who believe. This doubting faith, I love this about the Father. It says, immediately. There was no delay here. As soon as Jesus said, all things are possible for them who believes, immediately the Father cried out, I believe. Help my unbelief. If there's another line that I would ask you to underline, it would be this one. This is the prayer that every believer should be praying. I believe. Help my unbelief. Calvin has been helpful to me on this because Cal- Calvin had talked about the fact that this side of heaven, none of us have a perfected faith. There is always this, this belief and unbelief that is at battle within you. That even if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is an unregenerate part of you. The sin nature still lives in you and that sin nature rebels against God and hates him. That portion doesn't yield to God, doesn't worship God, and that peace within you is always going to create the battle. And that's why Paul would say in, in, in Galatians chapter 5, the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. They are contrary to one another to keep you from doing the things that you would do. So this doubting faith is without delay this doubting faith is heartfelt, as one speaker said. He cried out. I don't really like that. This doubting faith is decisive, though. He says, I believe. It's decisive. It's unconditional. He doesn't say, I believe if you could do this. He says, I believe, period. And then it's humble. Help my unbelief. See, this is the prayer that the disciples needed to offer, and it's the prayer that they did not. So the doubting faith leads to deliverance, Deliverance, verse 27, uh, 25 to 27. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, "You mute," and now he's add, "You deaf spirit." I command you come out of him and never enter him again. Jesus does what the nine disciples could not do. Jesus commands this demon to come out and then he puts a prohibition. Never enter him again. This boy is going to be forever free. Jesus makes what is humanly impossible possible. Jesus delivers. He frees. He restores the boy. And Jesus gives the boy back to his father. Oh, so amazing. He says, come out of him. And after crying, once again, these demons do this. After crying and convulsing him terribly, it came out of him. And then the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, he took him by the hand. He lifted him up and he arose. I don't know if this boy had actually literally died. I don't know. Or if he just looked like he died. But what jumps out at me is here is that this boy was seemingly dead, and now he's alive, and he's given back to his father. So here's the whole point of the text, the danger of self-reliance in verses 28 through 29. Mark 28 and 29 it says this and when he had entered the house his disciples asked him privately why could we not cast it out and he said to them this kind cannot be driven out by anything but by prayer now I have the word circled this kind and prayer circled okay so what's the problem here you know the disciples didn't ask in front of the crowd jesus why couldn't we do this why did i fail that exam they waited till they got jesus in private which i probably would have as well and they get jesus in private and jesus and they ask him why could we not do this and and the reason is this they trusted in themselves the text is is really about our inability our inability to conquer evil, our inability to set people free, our inability to be set free ourselves, except for the person and work of Christ. That's the, that's the whole theme of this text. You can't. He can. John, in John chapter 15, Jesus said that, you know, I am the vine and you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in you, the same brings forth much fruit, for without me you can do what? Nothing. See, the problem is, is that the disciples believed in their own ability. They believed in their power. They believed in their authority, that God had given them authority. God had given them ability, but it was a delegated authority. It was a delegated ability. He is inherently authoritative he has an innate sense of authority because he is god we are not the disciples thought they could just go in because well we did this before we can do it again kind of like me sitting in that cult leaders i've seen people come to faith in christ through the work that i've done and i see it again and what I fail to recognize is this, that if anybody is ever brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through an instrument like me, it is still by the power of the Holy Spirit. I preach, hopefully, but under the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is Christ that changes people's hearts and lives. The disciples miss that. Turn with me to a passage in Jeremiah chapter 9. In Jeremiah chapter 9, important passage for us to consider. It says this, Thus says the Lord, verse 23, I should tell you the verse, verse 23 and 24. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. This is another verse that if you do not have committed to memory, it's a really good one to memorize. Thus says the Lord. So this is coming from the very word of God to you. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. See, what this verse is telling us is this, we need to let go of self-centeredness, my pleasure. I need to let go of self-determination, my plan. I need to let go of self-reliance, my power. And I need to rely solely on God. The disciples failed. I want to give you three things, going back to the Mark passage, that I think... Um, I know I want you to walk away with. Here are the three things. Jesus is training his disciples, so remember that this is a teaching and training ministry. So what is he teaching them first? The ruthlessness of evil. Sin is disobedience to God's law. Sin is unbelief in God, even a hatred of God. And sin is about glory of myself rather than glory of God. So when we think of sin, we're thinking of the fact that it's disobedience, lawlessness. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 tells us that. It's unbelief, it's turning away from God. And it is about glorying in myself. We were hearing earlier about Romans 1. A little bit later on in Romans 1, Romans 1, it says that people have failed in this time to glorify God and fail to be grateful to him. See, we're here to glorify him and to be grateful to him. And when we fail to glorify him, it is the heart of sin. I want you to know that there is an external evil in this world. And the external evil in this world is considered in two components. The world system that is out there And then Satan and his demons. That we are living under a philosophy. We're living under a belief system that is godless. You cannot turn on a TV program undiscerning, lacking discernment, and just take in what they are telling you as though it is true. It is not You have to compare, like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, you have to compare what you are hearing and what you are seeing through the lens of God's word. Just because somebody has great sincerity, just because they have great passion, doesn't make it true. Just like the man that sat before me, he was believing something deeply and he beat me down terribly, but the reality is he was wrong. So I need you to know that there's a world system that is out there that is godless. There is a supernatural system that is out there that is godless. That's Satan and his demons. We see in Isaiah chapter 14 that Satan fell along with a series of angels, fallen angels, and they are now out there scouring the world. Those are external evils. We see that here in the story. But there's an internal evil that you need to be aware of your flesh, your nature of sin, that unregenerate part of you hates God. There's some basic characteristics of evil. Evil is deceptive, it lies. Young people, I, I'm a university professor. I get the privilege of teaching in a Christian university I can't even imagine what it's like to go out into the world and even in a Christian university you can believe you can hear things that are just not true. There are Christian churches where you hear things that are just not true. I need you to be very careful that the things that people teach there's some things that are just absolutely deceptive. Adults, you turn on your cable news stations. And just because they say it's true doesn't make it true. Evil is deceptive. Evil is destructive. We see in the story that this boy was being destroyed by this demon. This demon wanted to destroy him. He wanted to destroy this this boy's relationship with God, this boy's relationship with others. That is what evil does. It is deceptive. It is destructive. But evil is deadly. See, you cannot thumb your nose at God's standards and not expect that there is going to be a penalty to pay. There is an evil that if we allow to grow stronger in our lives, it will gain more ground in our lives. So, so young people, adults, parents, older people, I am begging you, recognize that evil is deceptive, it's destructive, and it's deadly. Is the second thing I want you to know. Not only the ruthlessness of evil, but I want you to know the reality of faith. Because I think that's the central theme of this whole passage. That all people, I want you to know, is this. All people are people of faith. All people are people of faith. Now, that may sound interesting to you. But every single person born in this world is born as a worshiper. They were created to worship God. When they choose not to worship God, they will worship something other. And so all people in this world live their lives with faith. Even the atheist puts their faith in their atheism. So I need you to recognize that as you look at people, they are going to be people of faith. But there's a second thing I need you to know. True, saving faith is based on the object of your faith. The foundation is the person and work of Christ. The scribes had their faith in their laws. The people had their faith in seeing a new show. The father may have had their faith, his faith in that Jesus could heal his son. The disciples were faltering in their faith, but it was true saving faith. It comes down to who do you trust in as your Lord and Savior? Who do you trust in for your salvation? See it's, it's humility. It's, it's coming to Christ as the foundation, it's coming to Christ in his cross. It is recognizing that He alone is the answer to your greatest needs. There's a third thing I want you to know about the reality of faith. Not only that all people are people of faith, and the true saving faith is based on the object of your faith, trusting in the person and the work of Christ. But it's not about third thing, it's not about the proportion of your faith. It's about the presence of your faith. It's not about the size or the dimension of your faith. It's not about the magnitude or the degree of your faith. It's not about the proportion of your faith. It is about the presence of faith, reality in your life. The theologians tell us that the faith is is knowledge. It's knowing the truths, knowing that there's a God, knowing that we are sinners, knowing that there's salvation, knowing the truths of the gospel. But that is not enough for salvation. Theologians will tell us then it's not just about knowledge, it's about belief, assent. That I I actually have to believe this information to be true. It's not only that I have the information, but I believe this to be true. Deeply in my heart. I believe that this is real. I believe the revelation of what God says is true. But there's a third element of saving faith. It's not just knowledge. It's not even just belief. Because the demons know Christ is God. They believe that Christ is God, but they're not saved. It's trust. See, it's knowledge, it's belief, it's trust. It includes our our knowledge and belief, but trust goes even further. Trust is a dependency upon God alone. See, he is the one that helps us. He is our power. We must depend upon him. That's what the disciples failed to recognize. So Jesus is teaching them that there is a ruthlessness to evil. Jesus is teaching them that there's a reality of faith. But lastly, Jesus is teaching them that they need a reliance on prayer, a reliance on prayer. Theologians call it means of grace. Some people don't like using the term, but means of grace are ways that God instruments that God will use to display his grace and gospel goodness to us. Three of the means of grace that God gives us is the word, fellowship, and prayer. See, you need to put yourself under the teaching of the word. And so that means you come to church on a Sunday morning and you hear, hopefully, a gospel centered message, a biblically centered message, Christ centered, cross centered, word centered, spirit enabled, God glorifying message. That's what hopefully you will hear from here, and that's the only type of church you should be going to. And the word is this precious thing that God communicates to you who He is and what He's requiring of you. It's our only means for faith and conduct. I bet you, I can tell you this, there is usually not a day in my life that goes by that I do not listen to a sermon, not one. So I may listen to my brother's sermons, if, you know, a sermon that they've preached. I may listen to the beauty of the time and the technology that we're living in. I can listen to sermons from people all around the world. I can listen to dead people's sermons. I can listen to sermons of people that are alive today, but I want to put myself under the word. Put yourself under the word. We have some Bible studies here at the church. We're going to be having even more of those. Put yourself in those studies. It's so important. A means of grace. Second means of grace is fellowship. I know that some of you are not able to be with us because of the virus that is here, and I absolutely understand that. But uh, we have tried, and what we're going to even continue to do, is provide you even opportunities to fellowship with us, even virtually. We have prayer meetings that happen virtually. We have Bible studies that are happening virtually. We're going to even have more Bible studies that are going to be happening virtually. See, there's one thing about a church service. It's a one-way thing. James preaches you're listening. There's There's no comeback. But when we're in a Bible study together, there is a communication and a fellowship with one another. It's a means of grace. So don't forsake those. Be involved in the word. Be involved in fellowship. But the most important thing here is prayer. What Jesus said here at the end of verse 29, in verse 28 and 29, he had said, "Why they asked, why could we not cast it out? And he said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but by prayer. Prayer is so important. It was so good to have the number of people online on Friday. And I know that Pastor Doug has been telling me about the number of people that have been coming uh, to his study. But I will say this, as I look out at this broad congregation, I'd love to see... The vast majority of us praying. R.C. Sprawl tells of, of doing a conference in California, and it was a Korean uh, Presbyterian church. And this church had 10,000 people, so it was a huge church. And, and R.C. Sprawl was driving up to the church to prepare his conference because they were going to do his, conf- this, his conference at the church. And as he drives up there, he sees all these cars, and they're coming out of the parking lot. And he's like, what in the world is going on here? And he asked the pastor, and the pastor said that every morning, over a thousand people get together in that church to pray. Prayer is probably the most underutilized tool in the Christian arsenal. We must be praying. So, why do we need to pray? Because God commands you to pray (laughs) Why should we pray? Because it is is fellowship with God. I cannot get a world leader online 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but you can get the universe leader online 24 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But prayer changes things. That when you pray, people get healed. We have people in our congregation that we prayed for, and they're healed. Marriages can be restored through prayer. People can get jobs through prayer. Don't don't misunderstand me. This is not a slot machine that God's going to give me all these things. What prayer is, it's about a fellowship with God, and God desires to bless you. And he chooses to bless you and bless each other through a means of prayer. When we pray, we need to have faith. When we pray, we need to be obedient. When we pray, we need to be humble. When we pray, we need to be persistent. But when we pray, we need to be praying in Jesus' name. See, we only have access to the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our only mediator, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 tells us. He is our great high priest, Hebrews 4, 14 through 15. He gives us access to the Father. He is our intercessor. Can you imagine that right now the Lord Jesus Christ is at his Father's right hand praying for you if you are a believer in him? Amazing. It's in the name of Jesus, but it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in believers' hearts. He knows your thoughts. Romans 8 even tells us that when I can't even come up with the words to pray, that the Holy Spirit is able to take those groanings in my heart and bring them as prayer requests to the Father. The second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is bringing your request to the Father. pray in Jesus' name pray in the holy spirit's power but pray according to God's will I've actually had some people that are praying for things that are absolutely godless <laughs> you're not going to get it <laughs> and if you do it's a judgment you don't uh, you don't pray about things that are just godless can I say last a couple last things before we close We are living in a um, pretty evil time. There was a church in California that was bombed recently because they took a stand against the sexual immorality of the day. There's a church that had protesters walk in because they were protesting abortion, that, that they were protesting abortion, and the people were chanting, defund the police, fund abortion." We're living in a time that there's a broad path that's leading to destruction and there's a narrow path that leads to life. We need to be trained by God, we need to be taught by God, and then we need to go out in the boldness of the Spirit's power into a world that is lost and dark. My very last thing I want you to see the cross in this story. I hope I'm not pulling this out of context. We have a father up on the mountain of transfiguration. We have a father in the valley here with his son. We have a father who says, this is my beloved son. We have a father in the valley who loves his son desperately. We have a father who sees the suffering of his son that is coming. We see a father in the valley whose son has been struggling since the very beginning. We see a suffering that is going to lead to death from the heavenly father's son. I see a son here who may have died, but clearly was close to death, and Jesus rose him again. I see a deliverer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I see one who has been delivered in this precious boy. I see one who has returned to his father after he did his work here on earth, and I see another boy. Whose return returned to his father after the deliverer had set him free. So if you walk out of here this morning and miss the fact that it is about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that is your only freedom, you've missed the story. And whether you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, every day you need to live by faith. And if you're not a believer, if you've never trusted in him as your Lord and Savior, I pray today would be the day of your salvation. Turn to him. Don't be like those blind scribes. Don't be like the fascinated crowd. Be like this father who says, I believe. Will you trust him today? Let's pray. So father, I praise you because you are a You're a great God. Father, sometimes I have small faith, but you're a big God. Sometimes my faith is weak, but you are strong. And that in, in my weakness, I can boast because in my weakness, it points me back to sufficient grace in your son. Sufficient grace in you. Father, I would never have come to faith in you if it weren't for the fact that you opened my blind eyes and you resurrected me. You gave me even the faith that I turned to you today. I pray for those that are in this room who have never trusted in your son. Maybe they've heard the message of truth, but they have refused to believe. I pray today you would break through their hard hearts, their dead hearts, their deaf hearts, ears, their blind eyes, and give them faith. And I pray that they return that faith to you. Father, for those of us that do know you, Lord, help us to know that we cannot do anything if it's not by your spirit and your son's power in our lives. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. So, Father, help us to learn the truths of the story. There's a ruthlessness to evil out there and in here. There's a reliance that we desperately need in faith, faith, even small faith, but faith that is grounded in your son, and that we need to rely on prayer and help us to see what you're going to do in our lives and through our lives for your glory and the advance of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let us rise, and I would like to uh, pray this prayer over you that Paul prayed over the Ephesian believers. It comes from Ephesians chapter 3, and it says this, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may be granting you strength with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever and ever. Have a blessed day.